Seeking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to episode four of our Top 40 Careers reboot. We are going back through NBA, well, not just through NBA history, but through the greatest players in NBA history and discussing their careers. If you're not familiar with that, go back a couple episodes to episode one, where we lay out uh, the concept and the criteria and the history of this project that I published about five years ago now. I mean, boy, Cody, does time fly. Um, Anyway, today we are continuing. Last time we had a a riveting discussion about James Harden and Reggie Miller. I I still haven't recovered from that one. But today we are plowing full steam ahead. And Cody, I want to talk about today two players that are often compared to each other. They are often... They are often linked in NBA history, despite their heart of their prime not lining up. They played in consecutive generations, one in the 80s and 90s, and the next really coming to prominence in the 2000s. That is none other than John Stockton of the Utah Jazz, the pick-and-roll maestro, the king of the pick-and-roll, and then Steve Nash, who may have been better at playing pick-and-roll. I was going to say the guy that then picked up the mantle as the king of the pick and roll. I wonder, I, I went into this and I'm like, I think people are going to have some have some feelings about some of these takes. But then I looked at the past episodes and I'm like, wow, never mind. I think they're just going to have feelings in, in every one of these episodes. In general, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're going to, well, you know, people are, that's, that's like a warning that we should probably provide. <laughs> We're probably going to upset someone uh, with some of the things we say at some point. But uh, what's fascinating to me about these guys, and, and we'll dive into it here in a second, is Stockton, I mean, they're both small little white dudes who are great passers and shooters and, um, you know, excelled in the pick and roll in their time. And when Nash came along, not just in Dallas, and we'll talk about Dallas, but in Phoenix, and he and he won the MVP, I think there was this idea of, okay, Nash is very similar to Stockton in pick and roll, even if I don't necessarily think he's better at that role. A lot of people are going, oh, this is like the next Stockton. This is amazing. We're seeing someone at this proficiency. And then there was a group of people who are going, I think he's surpassed Stockton. And that was over 15 years ago. And I feel like for some folks, that's just been the frozen landscape for over 15 years. Like if you didn't buy that Nash passed Stockton as a pick and roll guy, as an offensive end, as playing this style, right? If you didn't buy it then, you probably still don't buy it now. I think it's interesting to reflect back on them because I think Stockton is like, when people talk about traditional point guard, Stockton is like at the top. It's like, this is the guy the, that plays point guard. The pure point guard, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And I feel like Nash, a lot of people are like, that's the guy that stole a couple of MVPs. That's <laughs> he's him. Not, he, yeah, yeah. He's not as pure. Um I have a note at some point in going over Stockton for the latest historical series we're working on that this idea of the pure point guard is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. It was it was a big thing back when Stockton played back in the day. But now I think if I mean, you help me, Cody, if you try to describe the origins of this pure point guard concept, isn't it like a guy that. It's not describing a great offensive player necessarily. It's like a guy that kind of dribbles the ball up the court and doesn't do too much, but he makes the right passes and occasionally occasionally he shoots a shot by himself. I think a great comparison is like a pure point guard is supposed to be like the bassist of a band, like never taking a solo 
for himself, right? It's just someone that's supposed to keep the beat, make sure everyone's in tune, and just, you know, grooving and doing his thing. And, you know, when you step out of that, when it's like, all right, you're getting a little too fancy, all of a sudden that's no longer a traditional bassist. You're not a traditional point guard. I don't know where that originated because, you know, we've been watching a lot of historical ball. And when I think of traditional point guard in that respect, I'm like, oh, that just means a point guard that's like not very good. It's let's that's not exerting all this pressure on the defense. It's not a lead. You know, we talked about James Harden last time, and um, I think of him in many respects as a point guard. But more importantly, I think he's in the the lead guard, the lead initiator. I think during the series originally, the the top 40 series I published years ago, I called this like an offensive engine, an offensive vortex. Everything whirls around them. Today, we think of it as heliocentrism when you when you ramp it up to higher levels. But, I mean, Michael Jordan played like this. Dwayne Wade played like this. Magic Johnson to some degree. LeBron James. This is this is what you want. You want your offensive leader to be able to pressure the defense with scoring or passing. And the pure point guard thing always felt like, when you look back on it from, with some perspective, it feels like a backhanded compliment where it's like, we're holding you up in this highest regard of the pure point guard. But if you actually think about what we're saying... We have to make sure this guy doesn't do too much scoring out there. It's backhanded, but I also feel like it's like weirdly inflated in this abstract way. That's like he settles everyone on the court. He has this hand over everyone, is just controlling them like a like a puppet master. It's it's kind of this weird ephemeral like it's it's idolized. Yeah, yeah. It's, it feels like it's a revered role. Um, to that point, before we dive into some of the things we want to talk about with these players today. It's been 15 years. Steve Nash, we'll, we'll, we'll get into how contemporaries saw these guys in a second, but Steve Nash, when we look at the major publications recently putting out lists, we've talked about the USA Today Top 75 that came out last year, ESPN's Top 76 players of all time from earlier in 2022, even Slam Magazine's latest update. All of these guys have Nash in the 30s. That feels like a common place to put him in an all-time greatest uh, you know goat list of course we've discussed before how the criteria for a goat list is fluid i don't always know what that means but goat lists cody when you look out there nash is like 35th 36th 39th and then stockton he's always like stuck in the mid-20s and it's more than just a comparison of peak or prime but what always throws me about that is that nash is actually the guy who almost won three straight mvps and stockton is someone who never finished like higher than seventh in MVP and has this career where he's entangled with Carl Malone. And a lot of people think the Jazz kind of underachieved or weren't a legitimate contender for a lot of the 90s. They needed other players, other teams to age out, fade out, retire in the case of Michael Jordan. And so it's this weird thing where like Stockton is held in incredibly high regard and for good basketball reasons that we'll talk about today. But he seems to be able to stay in front of Nash by a decent amount in people's minds i think some of those lists like when most people look at them i think a lot of people put a ton of stock (laughs) stock into into quote-unquote winning like actual production of wins and the fact that stockton made two finals steve nash never made the finals the fact that stockton also has a couple of possibly unbreakable longevity records for the regular season i think those are a couple things that you take that and you're like you know what i think this is enough to to bump him up next to uh, this guy that apparently tried to take his mantle 10 years later, but just wasn't quite as successful in wins and didn't produce as much during the regular season. Yeah, and and what's interesting about that is that 
it came at sort of the end of Stockton's prime in Utah. He's also playing with Carl Malone, uh, of course, making the finals in 97, 98. And then the assist thing, I mean, he's a steals king as well. But the assist thing is like, well, look at all of Stockton's assists. How can Nash be better in this component of the game? You know, Nash himself isn't a huge scorer. I see these record assists. Make it make sense to me, Ben. Like, wh- how is Nash so much more important with his playmaking and passing if Stockton is the one with all the assist records? That's a great question. I feel like that's where we should start this conversation. Okay. Um, well, I think the I didn't ex- I didn't expect to start here, but I mean, oh, do you not want to answer- start here? No, let's just dive right in. Let's get crazy. We'll fly by the seat of our pants. Let's do I it. think th- I think the short answer is that Stockton is a very good passer. I, I'm comfortable saying he's a great passer. How about that? Steve Nash might be the best passer ever. Stockton is a good decision maker. Steve Nash might be the best decision maker ever. When I went back and originally did this project, Nash was someone who was generating more good or elite passes and layup assists based on my tracking by per possession of any player I've ever tracked more than magic Johnson, more than, more than anyone. And as you get deeper into the film, you start to realize like two things are happening. One, his vision and his ability to pass off a live dribble and play the angles, play pick and roll uh, in transition, manipulate defenders and make no look passes behind the back passes, lay down passes, things like that. They are almost maxed out. Like it's rare to see anyone in NBA history come close to that. But two, he is also, and, and Kyle Mann at the Ringer has a term for this that I like. He crowbars the defense, meaning he he creates opportunities with his probing and his dribbling and his, his quote-unquote gnashing, where like Wayne Gretzky, he circles under the basket. He, he creates passing windows that weren't there two seconds earlier because in his mind, he knows, oh my God, if I just keep going and probing, I can trick this defender to sliding two steps over. We were looking at some film before recording this this week, and two passes really jumped out to me on this front. One, he's going down the lane. He's got the right-hand dribble. He's coming off a screen. And Amari Stoudemire is standing to his left, and his defender is covering him. And Nash somehow, like, holds the ball out like a cat in front of the defenders looking at a laser. And Amari's defender just kind of turns to guard Nash, and Nash reaches around his defender and passes it back to hit Amari in his left hand for a layup because Amari's defender is now looking the wrong way. It's a, but just when you watch that, if you don't realize, like almost no one else in NBA history would do that at that moment, and you get a, a layup out of it, right? You get a layup that wasn't there. Um, the other one is the pass to uh, there's a there's a play we're watching where Kwame Brown is guarding. Is it Amari? Whoever he's guarding. It's Amari, yeah. It's Amari, okay. Kwame Brown's guarding Amari, and they're both on the block looking at Nash. And Kwame Brown Brown is in a completely reasonable guarding position. And based on, like, where Nash's head is looking, he still throws a bounce pass under Kwame Brown's left arm to Amari. It doesn't make sense. You shouldn't be throwing that pass. And yet he knows how to squeeze it past him. Like, it's almost like he's a goalie. It's almost like he's shooting on goal and he knows Kwame Brown is there. And he's like, oh, I know how to get this past Kwame Brown's arm and leg, even though it doesn't make any sense. Those are the things that add up when you watch Nash and Phoenix. And I think this is actually the thing that in such abundance juices their offensive rating. 
Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Yeah, and I don't want to get into the weeds of just like, let's just keep describing passes that we love of Steve Nash. But the one, Sorry. The one, no, no, I, I preface that because I'm about to do that exact thing because I feel like we could make this entire podcast just like, did you see that one pass Steve Nash made? But they're playing the Spurs and Nash throws a lob to, to Amari, right? They're, they're set up in the half court. He's put, bringing it up. And everyone's in good defensive stances. No one's really expecting for this pass to happen. No one reacts, including Amari, until the ball's probably 15 feet out of Nash's hand. So there's nothing there, right? Nash throws this lob, and then, as it's like a quarter of the way there, Amari's like, oh, that's for me. I should go to the basket, jump up, and put it in. And he does, and everyone else is just like, what? What?" And so I think like that's what you're getting to is... is you know, we'll get to the specifics about Stockton and Nash with this, but Nash threw those passes where you're like, you watch it and you're like, why? Like, where did that come from? <laughs> Whereas like some of the other passes that we see is like from Stockton, it's almost like, well, yeah, that was the pass to make. Like right. the player is supposed to be there and you threw it to him because he was there sort of thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good pass. Stockton has a lot of very good passes. He had a lot of, a lot of right decision passes. I actually think Stockton's a fantastic entry passer. Uh, that's something that was missing from the original article. You know, I reread it. I don't love the original Stockton article. Mm-hmm. It, it has a. It starts with a negative slant. It focuses on some of the negatives and overstates them. And that's a. That's just a challenge of sort of couching arguments in time. Um, but with that said, there is a difference when you compare sort of the goat level that we're talking about to where Stockton is at. And I want to get back to the Phoenix offense and Nash in a second, but let's jump in to this particular point with Stockton and Utah. And we talked about the pick and roll. Stockton played a ball dominant, like everything goes through you in the late eighties and early nineties. He, he actually wasn't playing too much in his first couple of years. And then in 1988, he has this breakout year clearly jumps to a kind of all-NBA level. You know, he makes all-NBA team for the first of, of many, many years. And this Stockton, this younger Stockton, is fast and quick and a dynamo on both ends of the for- floor and playing in transition and has maybe arguably his, the best season, uh, excuse me, the best playoff series of his career in 1988 against the Lakers in the uh, Western conference semifinals so this version of the jazz is stockton ball right this is everything goes through stockton he's the primary offensive guy on the team but it's not quite the same heliocentrism we see today it's like blended with that pure point guard concept we were talking about before where this is the offense let me describe utah's offense from like 1988 to 1991 for everyone i'll give it to you in 30 seconds you don't ever have to watch another jazz game Stockton dribbles the ball a lot over to the wing. Stockton waits for some screening action in the paint to see if he can throw an entry pass to one of two people in the post. Maybe someone else comes off a a screen before that, flashing in front of him to see if they can get a a layup or something. After that, 
the player, usually Carl Malone, comes over and runs pick and roll them on the wing. That's the Jazz offense. They just do that over and over and over again. So Stockton is dribbling and holding the ball and waiting for a lot of stuff to unfold. And what's interesting to me, Cody, is this offense wasn't actually that successful. Interesting. Like at, at the team level and the in the playoff sense, like in what way do you mean it's not successful? Statistically, this this Jazz offense back when you had this sort of very dominant Stockton ball was not an elite offense. During the regular season, they were kind of middle of the pack, usually right around average, things like that. And then in the playoffs, they also weren't you know particularly strong in those first couple of years. Would you say, because I think something that stands out when you look at some of those, especially late 80s Utah teams, especially when they had Mark Eaton on the team, was it that, because I think you could, I could see somebody countering and being like, well, Stockton was around a defensively slanted team. Carl Malone was still coming into his own. Mark Eaton was Mark Eaton on offense. And so they sacrificed some offense for defense. What would you say to that? I think they weren't on an offensively loaded team. I mean, they had like a decently solid off-ball shooter and spacer in Bob Hansen. Uh, but, you know, he's not a particularly strong offensive player. They had another post-up option outside of Carl Malone and Thurl Bailey. And then to your point, they had Mark Eaton kind of gunking stuff up. Blue Edwards was okay. In 1992, and we'll talk a little bit more about the changes in a second, but in 1992, you start to get a little bit more offense. Jeff Malone comes in as an upgrade and Jeff Malone's not a guy who shoots a lot of threes, but he can play off ball. He can curl off screens inside the line and things like that. And you still have Eaton. You still have Eaton playing 25 to 30 minutes a game and gunking stuff up. You still have a similar construction of the team. The other thing that happens in 1992 is you play less kind of that Stockton ball I just described. You actually start to see Utah throwing it into Malone and running a little bit more offense through Malone and having Stockton go off ball. You start to see things like, hey, they're running the pick and roll in the middle of the floor instead of only on the wing. Uh, you start to see stuff like, hey, they're, they're running floppy. That action that was so common in the 80s and 90s where Jeff Malone's on the baseline and he's getting screens near the basket. He can fly up away from the baseline and Stockton can hit him with passes. So there's a there's a shift from like, heavily, heavily centric Stockton ball, but not scoring 30. That's not what we saw with James Harden, right? He's not going to score 40 points a game and dish out 15 assists and modulate one up or down, depending on what the defense gives him. He's still going to score like 18, 20 points, 14 points, 23 points, and he's going to pick up strong assists occasionally when he gets into the lane and lays it down, playing pick and roll. He, play, he plays pocket passes really well. He, I mean, he's just really good at re pick and roll reads. We talked about his entry passes. And then he's picking up some of those Rondo assists where like, he's just the guy holding it and throwing it into Carl Malone, who gets an easy pocket. He's just the guy holding it and throwing it to Jeff Malone off a of curl. He just always has it during those years. Interestingly enough, 1992, when they start making some of these changes, that's the first time we really see Utah's offense jump. In the regular season, they go from around average to a plus four. Their, their offensive efficiency is four points better than league average, ranking them fourth in the league in 1992. The next season, though, the next couple of seasons, it, it takes a little bit of a dip, though, because the 93 drops down to a plus 1.6. The year after that is a plus yep. 2.3, and everything after that becomes the 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 
versus Bulls Jazz that we know and love. So do you think that 92 is a little bit of a blip, or do you think that there were actually some of those changes that just didn't quite produce those results in the next couple seasons? Uh, no, I don't think it's a blip per se. I think it's a step up because also in the playoffs, that's the first time we really see a jump in Utah's playoff offense, at least if we look at the offensive performance of the Jazz relative to their opponent's defensive strength during the regular season, they're like plus eight in that playoff run in 1992 where they make the Western Conference Finals. They they struggle against Seattle in the 1993 series, but they're right back up at this higher level from 1994 to 1997. And I think that's kind of a precursor to it. The second stage in the evolution is in 1994, Jeff Hornacek comes in. And Jeff Hornacek was an all-star player. He's one of these off-ball guys. He can do a little bit on ball. And so you can play Hornacek on some of those floppy actions on, on, you know, when you run the pick and roll in the middle of the court, if he's on the opposite wing, now someone slides over to help in that middle pick and roll action. Stockton can just kick it over to Hornacek. He can make a three. He can make a long jumper. And this is most important to me, Cody. They actually empower Hornacek to run some of the on-ball options and move Stockton off-ball more. Stockton had a little bit of off-ball juice. He was a nasty screener. He was a nice, timely cutter in learning, like, you know, when to slip a screen or something like that. And he wasn't someone, we'll go back to our friend Reggie Miller from last episode, he wasn't someone who's going to fly around a screen and catch it and hit a jumper over a trailing defender. But you didn't want to leave Stockton open for three off-ball. You know, like he he was a guy that when Utah moved him away from the basketball, the gears in the system still flowed smoothly. Maybe they lubricated and flowed even more smoothly because now you have Hornacek who can make decisions. Now you can have Stockton who can make decisions. Now you have Malone who can make decisions. In 1994, you'll see the Jazz throw it to Malone and then Hornacek and Stockton will run those Golden State Warriors split cuts at the elbow. You know, so the Jazz and and Malone starts to come along as a passer. So there's a shift with the Jazz where late 80s, early 90s is very Stockton-centric Stockton ball. And then mid to late 90s, 1994 to 1998 is much more about Carl Malone-centric offense and kind of blending these things with Hornacek and Stockton himself. I think talking to you about those early quote-unquote Helio Stockton ball. Like, I think the key thing to understand, too, about the way that he played was when you think about, like, James Harden, for instance, or when we talk about Steve Nash coming up here, is, like, when he has the ball and he's pounding, he doesn't really have, like, a what I call a horizontal game, right? He's not trying to break someone down with a lot of dribbling moves. If he gets into the paint or if he drives in to try and probe a little bit, it is off his quick burst because I think that is a key part of his attack is this really quick, speedy burst, even in the half court in transition. This really stood out. But I think later in the 90s, you start to see this fade away. He doesn't quite have that same burst. But to your point, what's really interesting is as the Jazz start making these changes, and I mean, even throughout his career, you look at his efficiency, and it's always really solid, like regular season John Stockton, you're like, oh my god, this guy's a really efficient scorer. This is fantastic. So the fact that he's able to, you know, echoing back to our James Harden conversation, the fact that he's able to blend in more as an off-ball threat while these other offensive players are thriving, at the same time that the Jazz are improving offensively, would you be able to call mid-90s kind of Stockton's peak? Like, why are we thinking that the late 80s, early 90s is actually Stockton's peak when he's able to blend in all of these skills with the Jazz? Well, he's doing less, and the Jazz are getting better. So, I my are you asking if I would say... 
just because he's now playing off ball and the Jazz are getting better, would I credit him for doing less? So I think this is like the production conversation. He's doing less, quote-unquote, production-wise, right? Where, like, maybe the box score is showing him doing less, but he's actually doing more with being able to cause some, like, off-ball gravity or taking advantage of his screening abilities or kind of being, like, the Reggie Miller off-ball sort of threat. Yeah, but, I mean, it's it's... You actually have to affect the game off ball versus just going away from the ball. Like he doesn't have a lot of off ball gravity. As good as a screener as he can be for a point guard, that's not moving the needle very much. That's a, that's a small factor that I think it makes him more effective than some backup like John Crotty or Howard Isley off ball. But I still think Stockton's value is coming more on ball or even primarily on ball. And it's very interesting that. He's a player, if we broke his career up into segments, we say like 1988 to 1991, you could easily argue it's the best Stockton, but certainly, as you just said, it's the quickest Stockton. He has the most burst. He has the most energy. He's flying around on defense. We'll get to defense in a second because it's a huge divide between these two players we're talking about today, Stockton and Nash. But offensively, it's interesting. They're... they're dialing down the Stockton ball that we described, changing the offense a little bit in Utah, running more through Malone. Like literally, if you look at their offensive loads in the playoffs, the the degree of offense they're carrying from 1988 to 1990, Carl Malone is at 38% of possessions he's directly involved in. Stockton is at 45%. We talked about Helio maybe being closer to 50 or something like that. But by 1994 to 1996, the middle heart of the decade, it almost completely flips. Malone's at 45% and Stockton goes down to 40%. So to me, it's not like he's getting off ball and then carving up the defense and running a ton of routes. He's just more becoming a cog in the wheel. And because of his skills, because of his screening, because of his craftiness, because of his spot-up shooting, he's a good cog in the wheel, but they've shifted away from that Stockton ball that... I mean, if you kept playing more like this, this would not be a guy averaging 14 assists a game and setting records that, as we said at the top, seems to have gotten him a lot of the historical notoriety. So you ultimately see it more as like they're not using more of his skills in a way that elevate the team as opposed to like they're taking away a little bit of his load in a way where he might have been overtasked or other players can do it maybe even a little bit better if they're able to create more. Well, I go back to what you said about when he gets into the paint. I mean, if he's running that pick and roll on the side and there's no help defender standing in the lane and he can get a step on his guy. Let, let's say the left side of, the, of, of his driving lane is there. He crosses over. He's really good at using his body as a shield and leaning into his defender. And if no one comes, he'll scoop it up for a little layup. You see him get points at the basket like that plenty, especially in the early and mid-90s. But, and this is a big but, Cody, like Sir Mix-a-Lot, the um, the second a big slides over there, Stockton rarely even challenges those guys. Two things are going to happen. One, he's going to abort, and he's going to struggle to get a shot up. He's going to struggle to draw a foul. He's going to try to throw a pass. Sometimes he might find a beautiful laydown pass. Sometimes it's deflected because the size and the length bothers him. There's one play I sang you where he just kicks it out and throws it into the stands. Um, size bothered him like that. The other thing he would do is he had like a little scoop shot, especially getting to his right hand. So if he's going not baseline left, but now back to the middle to the right from that opposite wing, he can scoop up a little floater from like, I don't know, four to eight feet 
And he made that shot, but that's not a high, that's not 60-70% rim percentage. That's not drawing a ton of fouls like you want to put pressure on the rim. That's not Kevin Johnson. That's not John Morant today. That's not Michael Jordan turning the corner. And I think that's what sometimes we forget when we watch basketball. It's like that scoop shot that Stockton just took, what does he make that, like 50% of the time? It's not, it's not high percentage. And that's the pressure that we're alluding to that you're not just constantly able to put on defenses. So to me, that's the answer to your question because it's like you actually move him off ball and you let someone else create pressure, whether it's Malone himself with his scoring or let's blend Stockton on ball pick and roll. Okay, now we'll give it to Malone. Malone's in the post. We run split cuts. We have cutters. Malone can hit those passes. Malone can kick it out. And that blending actually creates more pressure on the defense through the entire offensive system as a whole. I think this is like the global impact idea that you paint in thinking basketball, especially I think about Wilt Chamberlain when you're talking about somebody that has high efficiency and is is passing and stuff. And this isn't just with driving in that Stockton kind of looks away. I I think I sent you a specific play where he, he ends up, his defender overshoots him on a closeout, right? And he is like, you pause it. There's like 15 feet of space. And this is a game when like the commentators can't stop talking about how Stockton's like leading the league in three-point efficiency. It's like, oh, this guy's deadly out there. He has 15 feet of space. And what does he do? He tries to lob it into to, to Malone, throws it off a little bit. And I think the Jazz end up scoring that possession. But I'm like, my guy, like you got to be taking this wide open three if you're going to take advantage of like how efficient of a scorer you are. So I think that's really a key to hit on here is he did not always look for his shot. It was kind of a, a last resort in the half court. And I specify that because I think it may have been a little bit different in transition. Yeah, I think he was prone to be a little bit more aggressive in transition. He'd even take pull-up threes in semi-transition in the early 90s and things like that. The scoring, though, the volume is never very high. And I talk about this in the original article I write where if you compare him to Nash, if you look at even Magic Johnson, Chris Paul, whoever it is, I mean... They're scoring like five to ten times more frequently. They're hitting 30-point games in the playoffs. It's just very rare for him. So Stockton peaks as a playoff scorer from 1989 to 1991. Statistically, it's about 18 points per 75 adjusted for opponent and whatnot. And then his true shooting percentage is plus 7%. That's seven percentage points better than the opponent's regular season true shooting percentage defense. So 18 and plus 7 as a scorer, this is like, you know, I don't know, 60th percentile, 55th percentile, something like that. And then that's his peak. And then going back to the efficiency you just pointed out, 1992 to 1996, that shift we talked about with the Jazz as we get into the middle of the decade, as Malone becomes more prominent, as Malone expands as a player, specifically as a shooter, um, as a passer, without a doubt, and then maybe even figuring out how to use his body you know he's just he still has that spunky young athleticism combined with bodybuilder Carl Malone with the jump shot from the outside Stockton scoring in that period Cody 16 points per 75 that's right about league average you know league average is like 15 or something so 50th percentile kind of volume and his efficiency is only plus three percent in those years it's not particularly high and I think the issues with size I think the issue with shot selection, in this case, maybe being too passive, not pulling some of these threes that he was a really good shooter. Um, I think these are the things kind of holding him back as a scorer. And it's not like he has no scoring pressure. It's just this this isn't linear 
Like the second you start adding more and more scoring pressure, the more and more defenses react to you. And once you go over a certain threshold, then you're James Harden, right? Then you're then you're Steve Nash. Steve Nash. Well, should we talk about Nash now, or should we? Do you want to keep going with Stock? One second. There, there's one more point that I want to get across because I think this is something that I hear a lot when people talk about Stockton, and that's the the Jazz's playoff performances. Because in in that late '90s run between, what is it, three to four seasons between, like, 95 and 98, they have some of the, like, all-time, off like, regular season offenses. Like, one of those seasons, it's a, a plus 7.7 relative offensive rating. And I think they're... 1998, yeah. Yeah, just incredible, incredible regular season offenses. And as you just said, a lot of this is, is Stockton getting his foot off the pedal a little bit. Um, Malone's growth as a passer and a shooter and things like that. But I often hear people being like, eh, Sloan's set become really easy to read in the playoffs. They start to tail off in the playoffs. The playoff performances aren't as good. Is there any truth to that? Were the Jazz significantly worse in the playoffs, especially during that time? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I mean, maybe the taste that was left in everyone's mouth was the 98 finals where they had 54 points in game three. <laughs> and uh, But the, the wild thing about that is in this stretch, Malone is actually the guy who's like the only jazz player keeping them afloat with this offense that just run into a great Bulls defense and then their offense is falling apart. And Stack, Stockton really, really, really struggles in some of those games. But of course this is, you know, this is after an injury that sidelined him for the beginning of the 1998 season. This is, you're getting closer to what you might consider post prime Stockton. You're not in that 88 to 97 window anymore. And you're certainly not in that 88 to 91, 92, where I think Stockton was at, was at his best for this last year, looking at old games, we were fortunate enough to be able to get a ton more, late 80s, early 90s Utah games, both in the regular season. And as a result of that, I think I've moved up a little bit on Stockton's peak offense. I think I've moved up a little bit on those years being better years for some of the reasons that we talked about. Not just that he did more, but he was physically capable of doing more. And I'm not sure defenses necessarily had the same answer to some of his tricks, or maybe the league just wasn't configured that way. You know, by the time you get to the mid-90s, or even like 1992, 1993, you got to deal with this lengthy, switchy Seattle defensive team with Gary Payton. You got to go against the Blazers. And goodness knows, John Stockton struggled quite a bit against Terry Porter every time he saw him in a playoff series. I mean, we could we could just wax poetic about Terry Porter uh, for, for hours on this podcast. But you, you get more of these teams, the 90s Bulls, of course, later on. But you get more of these teams we have like bigger, more athletic, slightly more sophisticated defenses. And I don't think that played into his strengths uh, as an offensive player. I think that actually reveals some of his limitations. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. 
Adidas. So you you think his offensive peak then is probably late eighties, early nineties, like what you said. His de- do, yeah. his defensive peak seems to be right about that time. So ultimately, what kind of a player do you think he he tops out at? Does he hit like an MVP sort of level player? Do you think he's an All NBA sort of player? Especially now that you think his offense is maybe even better than when you originally did the Stockton article. Yeah, I think the peak is like a really strong All NBA level player. I mean, an interesting comparison going back to last episode is him versus Miller. I think their peaks are probably kind of in the same ballpark. And Miller gets an edge for me on offense. It's not a titanic edge, but he gets an edge for me on offense. And if you look, two totally different types of offensive players, of course, but defense is really where Stockton butters his bread, so to speak. Um, He's small, which means can't really protect the rim that much, although there are some plays, Cody, where occasionally he flies over and blocks a shot from behind because not because he's vertical, but because he's crafty and he's got good quick hand-eye coordination. But he, for a small guard, is a very active, very good defender. I mean, you like his defense, I think, even more than I do, but bouncing around at the nail, um, being a defensive playmaker, now it comes with some of the trade-offs you get in the late eighties in that period. Like there's some gambling, there's some gambling in the backcourt around midcourt, uh, jumping in passing lanes. I have a decent number of clips of like, well, you're, you're going for it, John, you're just going for it. And sometimes if you look at that, you say, well, what else is he going to do? It's a three on two. What else is he going to do? This is where that counterfactual of basketball comes in for me. If you're Scottie Pippen, you don't gamble because you can just, you can just stop the three on two more traditionally. Uh, So I don't blame Stockton for gambling, but we have to remember that it actually is a natural counteraction to his weaknesses anyway. Not a phenomenal man defender per se to me. I think a lot of what he brings is off-ball awareness, jumping. He has just some amazing rotations, and he's just at his best bouncing around in the middle of the floor. And to your point, I think that all probably happens in the early 90s-ish, things like that. He's still pretty active and good. Uh, 1994, 1995, mid-90s and things. So overall, it's a, I think it's a really strong, solid uh, all-NBA peak. I love Stockton's defense. <laughs> I, I, I agree with the man defense thing. I think I can think of a few times that like Robert Pack, a young Robert Pack comes in and just blows by him multiple times. And I know Robert Pack is very athletic, small guard in that way. But other than that, this dude just had a monster motor. I, I would I would be willing to say that he he's got to be up there. in Some of the most like backcourt turnovers ever created. I mean, he's just flying all over. He's hounding you. He's getting his hands and things. His his double teams are on point. Uh Oh, God, I just love watching Stockton on defense. I really, really... I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm probably a little bit higher than you uh, with him on this. I think I've said you, some things over text that I probably won't say right now, but I, I love you Stockton. Like, yeah, you like guys flying. You love, like, disruptive... It's it's your Matisse-Thibault thing coming back again. You love guys that fly around and are disruptive and all that stuff. Uh, Stockton, of course, made a ton of all defensive teams, and he was a he was a really good, gritty point guard defender. Uh, I also wanted to point out some, now that we have all this all-NBA voting, the contemporary viewpoint of Stockton starting in 1988, where we can look at the guards who get the most votes for the all-NBA team. 1988, you want to guess who the, there's only two guards in the league that get more votes than John Stockton for all-NBA team. Do you want to guess who they are? It's got to be Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. 
That is correct. 1989. Would you like to guess? Uh, it's only two again? Yeah. Is it Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan? 1990. What do you think happened? Is it only two, Ben? <laughs> it's 1991 is the first time where more than Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan get votes. He actually finishes fifth oh, oh. behind Kevin Johnson. Is okay. Kevin, Does Clyde Drexler is Clyde Drexler? Clyde Drexler. Okay. Yeah. Clyde Drexler and Kevin Johnson. In 1992, he finishes behind Jordan. Magic is gone, so Clyde Drexler again. And this time, Tim Hardaway gets about 4% more of the vote share. 1993, it's Michael Jordan and Mark Price. Mm. Mark Price. So, so I think, you know, going back and looking through that, I actually vibed a decent amount with how people were viewing him in the regular season. Now, maybe you can say later on he has a little bit more struggles in the playoffs, his efficiency drops, maybe playing certain playoff teams that were athletic and had big backcourts and better defenses created a slighter problem for his ability to pressure. You know, we could get into all that that we just talked about. But I thought it was pretty cool to see from 1988 to 1990, like right out of the gate, people were like, this guy might be the third best guard in the league behind these two Titans, top eight, top 10 player in the league, whatever that comes out to. Stockton never finishes higher than seventh in MVP. Um, but, you know, also keeping in mind that in 1991, whether it's Kevin Johnson, Tim Hardaway, Mark Price, like as you got into the 90s, there were opinions that said, okay, Price versus Stockton. I, I, I kind of like what Price is doing here in Cleveland in 1993. Cody, I know you're not going to argue with that. You're, you're a big Mark Price fan. I was say, you brought up both Terry Porter and Mark Price, and I'm like, it's not too late to pivot to those two. It's not too late to turn <laughs> this into them. Uh, but, you know, if he peaks at all NBA, I think kind of in the same vein as Miller. You had that amazing Miller stat last time where he got all NBA votes uh, however many years apart. How- oh, yes. No, Stockton gets him 16 years Oh, apart. my God. I was going to say, how many all NBA seasons do you give to Stockton? Because it's got it's got to be more than one it's a good amount uh i'll pull it up in a second but let me let me just finish this here jordan of course retires in 1994 1994 and 1995 cody really interesting the jazz have great regular seasons jeff hornacek is there for the entire regular season in 95 he comes over in a mid-season trade in 94 and stockton gets the most all nba nba votes of any guard now the competition's much thinner He's he beats out Latrell Sprewell, Kevin Johnson again, and Mitch Richmond. And in 1995, he beats out a young uh, Penny Hardaway, Gary Payton, and Mitch Richmond. In 1996, he would not beat out Penny Hardaway no, again. No. We should stop and do a Penny Hardaway uh, two, <laughs> two hour goat podcast. Uh, but it's it's an interesting arc that kind of you know he's getting a lot of love in '94 and '95, even though he's actually being downshifted a little bit in role, maybe getting some of that love and shine from Hornacek coming over, switching more to Malone. Uh, But certainly I don't have too much of a a disagreement with the arc of how he was seen by contemporaries based on these votes. He's still got to be at least like an all-star impact guy at that point, if not a like low level all NBA guy, because I still feel like he was bringing, he still had some solid defensive juice, even though he didn't quite have the same level of motor. He was still keeping up his shooting efficiency. He could still pass the ball. So I'm, I'm assuming he was at least still pretty solidly valued. Well, first, let me say 94, 95. I do think he was still, it's not his peak, but I do think he was still an all NBA level player. Mm. So starting, you know, back in 1988 at the end of the 80s, I have about 10 all NBA level seasons for Stockton. 
I think that's really the key for why Stockton ends up so, as, as high as he does on your list. Because, like Miller, you know, not a super high peak, but it's just like he hits that level and then he just stays there. He camps out there. That's that's what he is for, like, the next decade, basically. Yeah. Now, um, speaking of being at a level for a decade, I also have Steve Nash mm. with about... 10, I mean, the fringy ones, the ones on the end are closer, but let's say about 10 all-NBA-level seasons starting in 2002. You know, if is that high all-star or low-level all-NBA? I don't know. And then the same thing with 2011, kind of at the end of his prime. Uh, Nash really kicks it into gear in 2001. I talk about this in his article where he's in Phoenix. He's drafted out of a small school. He's behind Jason Kidd and Kevin Johnson, these like Hall of Fame level point guards. He goes to Dallas, but he has injury problems. He's got back issues. He's got to kind of rebuild his gate mechanics and things like that. But 2001, I think, is the first time we see Nash as an all-star. And it's this string of periods, this string of periods. What a great sentence. (laughs) Um, It is a string of years, this period, where... Plays on like an all-time level offense in Dallas and then in Phoenix almost every single year in the regular season. That was something I wanted to ask you about because I know uh, in some of those Dallas Mavericks years, especially when they sacrifice a lot of defense for their offense, where they're like, Dirk, you're now a five and your backup is like Antoine Walker. Uh, they, they just produce just ridiculous offenses. So do you... Do you not quite see Nash being at the same level? Like, what appreciably is different about Steve Nash in those late Dallas years as opposed to any transitions to, like, the Steve, the seven seconds or less Steve Nash that we all know and love? That's, that's a great question. Um, physically, I think when he goes to Phoenix and works with the medical staff there, he, he moves better. He's, his conditioning is better. Some of that is probably motivation from, I mean, I think he wanted to stay in Dallas, but, you know, given his age, Dallas didn't want to match that contract that Phoenix offered him. So he goes to Phoenix. uh, He's better conditioned. He moves better. And then he gets more space from Mike D'Antoni's system. He gets the keys to the car. So it's kind of like he was still doing a lot of the same things in Dallas with Don Nelson. But Don Nelson was constantly bringing in other guys to have the ball, other ball-dominant players, whether it was Jerry Stackhouse or Antoine Walker or Nick Van Exel or even Antoine Jameson, uh, just someone else who could score. There was just constantly an influx of these players coming into the team situation, even though you had Nash and Dirk Nowitzki. I think the combination of all that, along with Nash probably just getting older and wiser and better as a player, he was always a great passer. But even looking at like 2003, 2004 to 2005, 2006, when he gets to Phoenix, I think the combination of everything and the league emphasizing freedom of movement rules and D'Antoni saying, we're going to come in and we're going to create more space for these players to work with. We're going to downsize and put Amari at five and allow him to just allow Nash and Amari to just destroy teams that want to run a bunch of slow lumbering bigs out there. I think it was all that that bumped him up a level offensively when he got to Phoenix. So this is interesting because we have early in Stockton's career. We find that like even though Stockton is is the main driver of the offense, that their offense actually balloons and gets better when he gets taken off ball a little bit more. The same is not said for Steve Nash, right? Like we, he's producing all-time level offenses when he's given the keys. And I feel like 
I feel like it's a really interesting thin line here in that I feel like I heard a lot of people, especially at the time, be like, oh, Steve Nash is a system player. He's a system player. But I also think that, like, the thing with Steve Nash is I feel like he is the system. Like, the system exists and works because of Steve Nash. It's kind of like Steph Curry now, and I feel like that's kind of talked about. It's like, well, if he wasn't with these guys, like, he wouldn't be as good as he Well, yeah, it's because it's because of him that this is happening. So, like, what what is it that Steve Nash does differently then I guess we touched on it a little bit. What does Steve Nash specifically do differently that makes him so much better at this than John Stockton? Well, the system player thing is funny because, like, is Magic Johnson a system player because they want to put a bunch of wings and run and then also have Kareem in the half court <laughs> so they can fall? Like, is uh, is James Harden a system player because you want to put 3 and D guys around him and space the court and just isolate or force switches? It's It's like, yes... What what D'Antoni was able to do there makes it easier for the offensive players to succeed. That's the point. It was ahead of its time, but no one, no backup, no other point guard, not James. It doesn't matter. No one made the passes Steve Nash made in those situations. No one made the decisions Steve Mash, Nash made in those situations. No one played with the aggression, maybe, that Steve Nash played with in those situations, the pace, the ability to push pace and make decisions at tempo. No one did that. And then he's one of the greatest shooters ever. And at, while Stockton is a good shooter, I think even in that regard, we're talking about a level up. If you look at all-time mid-range level seasons, Steve Nash has some of the highest marks percentage-wise in NBA history on good volume. He is a monster three-point shooter. There's, the, of course, the idea that he should have taken even more threes. Uh, than he did back then because the shot wasn't as popular. And then he's he's bigger, but not not really by a huge amount. But um, he's a little bit bigger and more comfortable probing and playing in the paint. So maybe his handle is slightly tighter. They both had really good functional handles. But like when Nash gets in traffic, we have this term gnashing, right? Where you can just probe and probe and probe and probe. Keeping that dribble alive and then crowbarring and making something happen, mixed in with the fact that he had a ridiculous scoring arsenal as he was doing that, right? Those things are both happening at the same time. That is critical to crossing that threshold that I talked about with offense because you get in the paint and you have the ball on a string and you're hesitating and maybe I'll go, maybe I'll pick. All of a sudden, layup pass to Amari that we talked about earlier. But the other thing for Nash, spin, little fadeaway from eight feet in the paint, constantly made that shot. Oh, let me throw a lefty hook at you. What? Why is he throwing rolling lefty hooks off the glass? Well, he can do that too. What about the step back? Nash's step back was absurd. And because it was Nash ball, because he was the central kind of nervous system operating everything in that entire Phoenix offense, so much of his offense was unassisted. We have synergy data, Cody, going back to like 2005, I believe, early synergy data. And if you look at 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, in the regular season, Nash doesn't call his number all the time. But his isolation points per possession are like 1.01, 2006, 1.01, 2007, 1.00, 2008, 1.07, 2009, and 1.00, 2010. For comparison, Kobe Bryant at much higher volume. So it's not purely apples to apples, but Kobe Bryant 
in isolation, according to Synergy, you know, taking anywhere between like two to five times more shots in isolation. He's 1.00.92, 1.07.97.94. So you don't have the same ability to generate crazy volume, but you have this really skilled isolation score that's blending this isolation scoring in with the decisions of, well, I'm turning the corner on pick and roll. You don't know if I'm going to pull up from 17 feet and drop it at like a 52% two-point jumper or spray it to a 48% three-point shooter, Joe Johnson, in the corner. And he just makes those decisions perfectly 60 times a game. You touched on the fact that they both have really good functional handles, but this goes back to something I said about Stockton. Stockton, like I said, didn't have like this, I don't have a better term for it, but it's like horizontal dribbling, like not able to dance with it and kind of make a move. He was just like, I got it, straight line burst. Nash, I felt like, like every dribble felt like there was some shiftiness in it. Every dribble felt like there was this built in, like in and out where like the defense was just kind of thrown off. Like every single move he took, it felt like he was going multiple directions at once. It's really kind of, trippy and surreal to watch but to your point when you go back and watch him it's it's actually kind of shocking to see how many of his shots that he makes and takes is self-generated but when I do see him going off ball let's say he ends up in the corner for whatever reason he gets a catch he nails it he's one of the best shooters of all time he just is when you take all of those skills I, I remember this from from other analysis that you've put out for Nash that you don't necessarily think he's a super high portable player, but he seems to have these skills that should make him work next to other high end players. So what is it about Nash that it doesn't feel like he actually fits that well, or he's, he's not as good as he could be if he's next to other high end ball handlers. It's because he's so good on ball that that's the rub, right? Like if you in Dallas, you almost see it. If you put him off ball more, he's not bad. He, he, might, he might even be able to make an all-star team playing off Baltimore. Maybe a little bit more like what Price did with Cleveland, right? Coming back to him, Price was a little bit more off ball, a little bit better at coming off screen. You know, just the way, the way they used him versus Price dribbling the ball every possession. So that would be a good offensive player. But his strength is decision-making. His strength is manipulating the defense with the dribble. He's not a great traditional explosive athlete. But his change of pace, his change of direction, playing angles, all that herky-jerky stuff, his balance, right? His proprioception of understanding where his body is in space with the dribble. Remember, we talked about James Harden and the cuttlefish last time. It's like the same thing. It's harder sometimes to do that off ball without the ball. So when he has the ball, that's when you're getting Super Saiyan Nash. That's when everything's all charged up right? Because he can make the decision. He can control you with the dribble. He can perfectly blend when I'm going to drive, when I'm going to stop and shoot, when I'm going to step back, when I'm going to pass, when I'm going to crowbar, manipulate, take an... He can't really probe the way he does without the dribble. If he's off ball and doing these silly little cuts in a circle in the lane, it might not be much of a passing target. But when he has the ball, then he mesmerizes the defense because they're like, oh, he's getting close to the basket. Maybe he'll shoot. And it naturally draws another defender. So I think the answer here is like, there's nothing wrong with him off ball. He's just, all of his strengths are on ball. The more you take that away, the more you lose that power. Very similar to someone like Magic Johnson. It's almost kind of LeBron in that sense. But LeBron even has some more like, Nash isn't able to get an offensive rebound that easily. He's not able to rise up for an alley-oop or something like that. He's just going to knock down some threes. 
Yeah, LeBron has the power cuts, and he can seal on the block and post up, and he can offensive rebound. I think for Nash, it's more, uh, you know, smart extra passing, and he can knock down some threes. You mentioned him as one of the great shooters ever. Uh, Just to put some context on this or to put some numbers on this, Stockton was a career 83% free throw shooter, even late in his career. Sometimes you see guys get really, really good at the end of their career because they've shot so many and they're so comfortable at the stripe. You never really have, like after 1997, after age 34, Stockton gets to 83.7%. So he's pretty consistent from three from uh, from free throw the free throw line for most of his career from three you alluded to it earlier always a good shooter really good when they shorten the line from 1995 to 1997 he was always like 42 43 percent there but for his entire career never took too many like two or three three point attempts per 100 possessions and he's in like the high 80s let's say right so this is a very good shooter but to compare to Nash. Nash in his career was a 90% free throw shooter. Career? 90, Cody. Career? Career, 90.4 for this career. Uh, once he got to Phoenix in 2006, shot 92% from the line for the rest of his career. And we, If we look at the old, you know, I mentioned age 34 Stockton. Nash after age 34, a little over 92%, one of the highest marks of all time. And then Nash is a 43% career three-point shooter. And again, there's this idea today that he should have taken more, but compared to Stockton's two or three per 100, Nash in the regular season, starting in 2002, is always about five or six three-point attempts per 100 possessions. In 2008, he gets to seven three-point attempts per 100 possessions. So we are talking about one of the great... I think if you remove Steph Curry as a category and you didn't have Steph Curry, I think you could make an argument that Steve Nash is maybe the greatest, if not on the very short list, of the greatest shooters to ever play basketball. And him blending that with all his all the playmaking, all the stuff we're talking about, I think is a big reason why Phoenix had some of the best offenses of all time in the regular season and some of the best offensive results all time in the playoffs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, I, I'm going to stick on this point for a second. You think he has a, a chance to be the greatest shooter ever not named Steph Curry? Yeah, I think if you remove Steph Curry, he's certainly in the conversation and probably on a very short list. Uh, I like to think of shooting relative to era as well. So I think Larry Bird's probably in that conversation. You know, there's probably a few other guys we can pull into that conversation. Maybe Miller, maybe Ray Allen, maybe someone I'm forgetting. But you tell me, Cody, what name would clearly be ahead of Steve Nash? You got the you got all-time mid-range level stuff. You got great touch, all those little fades and hooks and scoops around the basket. You have diversity of shooting. You have three-point shooting. You have free-throw shooting. And I think there was a Sloan paper many years ago that looked at all of the difficult, like, where do guys take shots all over the court? And instead of just saying this guy's really good from the corner or really good from the wing, what if we create some way to value diversity 
And I, this was before Curry was in the league, uh, you know, maybe 2012 or something like that. So before Curry really became Curry. And Nash was the guy who graded out as the best shooter in that entire study from all the data that they looked at. So uh, you give me the name, but I, I think he's definitely in that tier. No, I, I remember when I was on the, the hot take mobile back in the day, I think it was in 2015. I, I wrote something up where I was like, you know what? Steve Nash is actually probably a better shooter than Steph Curry, which, you know, 2015, who knows? I'm not going to go back and relitigate that. I was, I was young. I was youthful. I was trying to, to stir it up, but obviously that's not a conversation anymore. But like you said, when you bring everything into it, you know, the short mid-range, long mid-range, turnarounds, contested, pull-ups, things like that. I, str- I struggle to think of people. But if we're talking relative to era, I do think there's another guy that we might be talking about at some point in a future episode that's uh, mind-blowing when it comes to his shooting ability. What's his name? His name is Jerry West, Ben. Oh, oh, I like that. That's, that's yeah, I, I would I like that. That's a very good uh, good inclusion on your part. Let's Let's kind of put some stats on what this all comes out to because I think this is a key difference between Nash and Stockton as these archetypes offensively where Stockton maybe is a little bit a little gives you a little bit more off ball but when we're talking about on ball orchestration pushing pace and transition decision making the pick and roll game empty side wing pick and roll whatever it is overall passing I mean Nash is Stockton's a really good passer but Nash is in a different tier uh, almost to me, just because he's he's got a chance to be maybe the best passer we've ever seen. When you look at Nash's scoring, especially in the playoffs, those isolation numbers come out more because he would encounter teams and San Antonio would be like, or Dallas would be like, well, what are you going to do? Beat us with your scoring? And he'd be like, yeah, I'll just throw up 40 in this game if you don't want to guard this action properly. Sure, I'll just shoot a ton more. Here are Nash's scoring numbers in Phoenix, in the playoffs. Uh, 2005, 24 points per 75 on plus 9% true shooting. 24 at plus 9%. 2006, 21 plus 9%. 2007, 20 plus 5%. 2010, 22 plus 10%. Of course, 2010, D'Antoni is gone. You have Alvin Gentry coaching the team. And my lasting memory, they they take the Lakers. um, They played the Lakers really, really close in that 2010 Western Conference Finals that we talked about in our Conference Finals MVP series. And my lasting memory from that series is Nash switching, forcing a switch because the Lakers wanted to switch the pick and roll because you have to switch Nash's pick and roll at a certain point because you can't stop it traditionally. So they just switch it. And then Nash pulling back out and going, okay, Pau Gasol, I'm going to destroy you in isolation. And he did that down the stretch in a couple games. Um, Phoenix's offensive rating every year he play, I mean, their playoff offensive ratings are like in the 99th percentile all time. Just, just an amazing tour de force. Okay. I, I got to ask, ask the question that everyone is thinking right now. Everyone. Steve Nash, possibly, possibly in the conversation for greatest non-Steph Curry shooter of all time. Steve Nash, possibly the greatest passer of all time. Steve Nash, produces some of the greatest regular season and playoff stretches of offense ever. Is, is Steve Nash the best offensive player ever, Ben? Well, I think he's I think he's in that conversation. Yeah, wow. I mean, he, he's obviously, oh, yeah. I think we have to go back to our rule about correlating the player to the team. Uh, he's obviously playing on teams that have good offensive talent, and he's playing on teams at times that cheat offense you know, in favor of defense to get a large net gain. But just when you watch him play, 
I think in systems where you're going to empower him and you don't have to worry about him playing with other on-ball talent that much and things like that, the combination of what we just talked about, the passing, the ball handling, the shooting, the decision-making, let's put it this way. I would say at worst, you could name five or six better offensive players at their peak in NBA history. And at best, you could probably move him up near the very, very, very top of that list. That's I love that take. That's incredible. To your point about setting him up around play finishers, the thing that always blew my mind about Nash is, is two guys. Like you look at Sean Marion's impact metrics and look at how he scored and his efficiency and things like that. And you know, there's like a there's like a little three, four year peak, I don't remember exactly how many years it is, where he spikes up there. And then he goes back down to what he was before, and you're like, Oh, what happened there? It's like, oh, those are the seasons that he played with Steve Nash. Joe Johnson's another one. The, I think the like one full season he plays with Steve Nash, his three point percentage is like forty eight percent. Forty eight percent. He plays like eighty two games that season. He plays the entire season. Other than that, I don't know if he's ever crested like low forty one, forty two. It it's unbelievable. So you just have like you can't correlate like team success to like a player, but like every single indicator you look at at how good of an offensive player he is, Steve Nash just blows it out of the water. Yeah, I mean if you look at box score, he's got really you know maybe not the all-time very 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 best playoff box score numbers but his offensive box score heights are you know 99th percentile kind of things they're a level above where Stockton reaches in my box score model Uh, his plus minus numbers with changes on offense are monstrous and then of course these are all the signals you want you want to see a guy who when he's on the floor all of his teammates' shooting percentages rise, right? The efficiency of the entire offense rises. And when he's off the floor, you know, maybe his team is still a decent offensive team, but when he's on the court, we're talking about some of the best offensive teams we've ever seen. Very similar style, quarterbacking the offense to, you know, what we saw from Magic Johnson in the 1980s. Um, Contemporaries, this is someone who, with Nash, despite what people say about how he won these undeserving awards, uh, he got over 70% of the MVP share for three straight seasons. Remember, Stockton peaked at 4.5% of the MVP share. Uh, Nash got over 70% for three straight seasons. Um, when he was in Dallas, you know, I think I, another thing is that feels a little off to me in terms of the actual way he was viewed. When he was in Dallas, he was an all NBA level player. You know, he made uh, the team in 2002 and 2003, and in all three seasons from 2002 to 2004, his final three Mavs seasons, he got about 12 to 15 percent of the vote for all NBA. It's You know, that'll get you like a third team kind of nod and things like that. He just barely misses in 2004. If you compare him to the other guards of the time, as we did with Stockton in all NBA voting in 2002, when he's with Dallas, Jason Kidd gets more votes. Kobe Bryant gets more votes. Gary Payton gets more votes. That, that seems like a legacy. Yeah. Uh, 2002 Gary Payton over over Nash is a tough one for me. And Allen Iverson also gets more votes. 2003, Kobe, McGrady, Kidd, Iverson. And this is maybe my favorite one of all time, Stephon Marbury, who would be the player that Nash kind of swapped in and out for. And you get the total change in the system. And I think that's probably what valuing, valuing raw points per game and things like that. So if he's peaking is possibly top, whatever all time offensive player, 
we're not talking about him as the GOAT. Like, at this point in this series, he's not in the top 10, he's not in the top 15, he's not even in the top 20, right? How detrimental is this defense, Ben? Uh, I think it is a negative. I think it is a negative. I think it's underrated in some areas because he's such a heady player and he's so aware of some of the things that are happening. So he's really good at taking charges. He's good at putting his body in a position that it needs to be in. I don't know how big communication was on some of those teams. I mean, he plays on these very offensive-centric teams in, in Dallas and Phoenix, not just philosophically, but the lineups. Right there's so many times where they're like we're going to play Antoine Walker at center we're going to play Boris Diaw and Dur- and Amari Stoudemire at center, so I don't know how how much communication could have added value, but he he seems to be a very aware defensive player. He will even sometimes make those great basketball plays down the stretch where you're like oh my god Nash like was falling out of bounds and threw it off the guy's leg to force a turnover, but those are not super common. Uh, He wasn't very disruptive. He wasn't much of a playmaker. And his size, of course, was an issue. And I think people think of his size as like, oh, you could just pick on him. You could, if he played Terry Porter, he would average 30 points a game against him. It's like, well, that's actually what happened with John Stockton. Um, (laughs) But like, you didn't actually have guys totally destroying Nash in one-on-one situations. I think the bigger thing was just in the team defense, in paint help and rim protection, Outside of some charges that he took, he offered very little. So I do think of him as a negative defender. I don't think he was like catastrophically negative. I don't think he, you can just watch, you know, watch possession to possession. He just is not making a ton of mistakes out there. And he's, it's more like he's downgrading from a bigger body or a more athletic body that you could have in there. He, he He's the point guard. He's, He's not particularly impactful on that end. Yeah, I actually, in my notes, I literally have charges in all caps with multiple exclamation points. It's it's yeah. almost shocking how often this he took guy a ton. Gets, yeah, yeah, no, he took a ton. He took a ton. I think he was around the league leaders. I might have the stat in his original backpicks article in there. Um, let me let me just finish up because these are the Dallas days, and I think the big thing to understand about the Dallas days for me is like if we ran this career backwards when he went to Dallas. People might be screaming at the top of their lungs, like, why are you giving the ball to Nick Van Exel and taking it out of Steve Nash's hands? Why are you... uh, Maybe we expected Nowitzki, the 2006 MVP, and Nash, the 2005 MVP, to come together and be this beautiful synergy. And when you watch them play, they can play pick and roll and pick and pop. But, you know, you do kind of want Dirk to have the ball more to get the most out of Dirk. I like Dirk playing with a kind of off-ballish kind of guy like Jason Terry, um, Nash could do that as well, and he did in Dallas. But as you asked earlier, and we talked about, that takes the ball out of Nash's hands. So the whole Dallas thing to me is not just all the stuff we talked about with him improving going to Phoenix, but it's like not the greatest role for his strengths. It's not the greatest fit in terms of the star, maybe with Nowitzki, and then also just the other guys that were constantly put in there. Despite that, the league still viewed him as an all-NBA player, I think probably rightfully so, then you go to Phoenix. No one got more all-NBA votes, of course, in 2005 when he won MVP. Um, Kobe got more all-NBA votes in 2006. They were both in like the 98 or 99% of getting all votes you could possibly get. And in 2007, he gets 100% of the vote share. In 2008, only Kobe and Chris Paul get more votes in 2010 only Kobe and Dwayne Wade get more votes. So I think he's, you know, I don't know. 
how far, uh, how different I am from the contemporaries at the time, other than, especially in Phoenix, I think he just kind of crosses an offensive threshold and he might even be better in the playoffs. Phoenix was certainly fantastic against playoff competition. 2005 and 2007, they're probably a championship level team. 2007, especially, Cody, remember 2006, they were, uh, they didn't have Amari Stoudemire. They kind of ran out of big men in the playoffs. But in 2007, that series against San Antonio, I mean, they were, they were, if not better, they were just as good. They were right there. You had the suspension with uh, Robert Ory checking Nash at the end of game two. I think he got five minutes in the penalty box for that. And, uh, and some sons got a game misconduct for game six, but you know, just, just a really, really good team powered by this great offense. So ultimately, I think you started off by saying that you probably credit Nash with maybe, I think you said 11 all NBA seasons. In, I think uh, maybe 10. 10? I think Stockton. I think Stockton had 11. Oh, Stockton was 11. Okay. So yeah. the Nash, you think, is probably around that, that MVP level range. How long do you think, or how long do you credit him to be staying at his peak then? For how many seasons was he like that MVP level player? I, I think 2005 to 2007. And then 2008, maybe even in the low, I would say like low level MVP. Uh, he has a down year in 2009. There's a lot of stuff happening in Phoenix in 2009. And then 2010, as we talked about earlier, I, I think he's, you know, it's not as good probably as his peak uh, when he's 2005, 2006, 2007. 2007 might be his best season. 2005, he's absolutely amazing. 2006, he's amazing. But 2010 is not too far off from that. So I kind of view him as having like, let's say... How many was that? Like at least four, five seasons in that range. Okay, because I'm, I'm thinking back to our honorable mentions now, because some of the players that didn't quite make it, the Jokic's and whatever else, they have these high peaks. But I think now we're getting to this heart where to get to this level, you also need to have the close to a decade-long career of all-NBA-level play. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're pretty high up the list at this point. Um, we are talking about originally... I think Steve Nash was 19th when I did this many years ago. Stockton was 25th. Um, at this point on this update for me, we are talking about John Stockton as the 24th most valuable career in NBA history and Steve Nash as the 23rd most valuable career in NBA history. They actually have slightly different ranges for me, remember the number. I, I mean, I don't know what to do with the number. Once we finish recording, I'm going to forget it. I think in terms of total career value, Nash with a shorter kind of uh, overall longevity compared to Stockton. Stockton has like a flatter curve as he ages through his career. Nash with the higher peak for the offensive stuff we talked about. Even though Stockton is clearly better, he has a nice, real good edge defensively. I think Nash's offensive edge is even bigger at his peak than Stockton. I just think you're talking about running championship level offense through one of the great quarterbacks in NBA history. That's that's almost a different animal than what Stockton brings, despite Stockton being like a good all-star offensive player. Uh, they're just different things. It's kind of like comparing Steve Nash to Mark Price or Steve Nash to Kevin Johnson or something like that. But they have different sort of ranges to me because of the nature of their careers. So if I go high on Nash, he could be at like 19th. If I go low on Nash, he could be at 28th. But because there aren't that many seasons 
And I'm not going to look at any of those Phoenix seasons and be like, yeah, you're just like a ho-hum all-NBA player. It just doesn't make sense. He's just clearly an MVP-level player. His range is a little tighter. Stockton's range is actually a little broader because when you change how you feel about the prime level, it knocks down like 10 of these seasons or bumps up like 10 of these seasons. So I actually have my optimistic evaluation of Nash, uh, of Stockton, excuse me, taking, taking him past Nash up to number 16. And then my pessimistic evaluation for Stockton below Nash's low end, all the way down to, to 31. So it's kind of interesting that there isn't always a symmetry in thinking about like what it means in this exercise to go higher or lower on players. So the key for what you're saying with Stockton there is if you bump up one of his season, his peak or you lower one of his peak seasons, you probably have to do the same thing to a lot of other seasons because he's so, so similar. I think so. Okay. Yeah, even though, even though there's some change and even though there's some tailing of aging and things like that, it's kind of like if you look at the heart of his prime and you go a little bit higher, a little bit lower, you you probably have to make the same kind of tweak to the surrounding seasons. And because he's got like a good decade of these seasons before you even get into like the post-prime Stockton stuff. And Stockton has a ton of value in his post-prime years. He plays a smaller role typically. Some seasons he's even under 30 minutes per game in the regular season. But he's really, really good and effective in that role. His plus-minus numbers are fantastic. His defense is still there. He scores even less. But again, you're not looking for him to be like an all NBA or dominant offensive force. You're still just looking to get value from the passing, the shooting, the decision making, the screening, the off ball cutting, things like that. Is there anything you want to say about those two? Because if, if they're 23 and 24, that means we've uh, missed a few between Miller and them. We Yes, we're going to have to circle back um, and, and fill in in a second. The last thing I want to say about Stockton and Nash in terms of this project is that if I run the eight-year numbers mm. for Stockton, his his prime to me is maybe top 30. I think I had it 32nd. So it's kind of on the fringe there looking at like what it means for Stockton to play at this all-NBA-ish level for eight consecutive seasons. Nash has, starting in 2005 in Phoenix, the big juicy peak, or maybe you include some of the Dallas years, and his eight-year numbers to me are closer to top 20. Mm. I think I had him 20th, uh, which is pretty consistent with his placement last time before some of the newer players that we're going to talk about soon, starting next episode, have come along uh, and passed him. Yeah, actually, I have one more question about Stockton, Ben. I have one more. Let's go back to Stockton. I forgot about this because I think this actually backs up what I'm trying to say here is there are a couple of metrics out there in the world. There's there's basketball references, box plus minus. There's uh, 538's Raptor. And when you look at them, like Stockton's offensive numbers are literal like all time. Like they paint him as one of the greatest offensive players of all time. Like you look at the peak, he's like top five, top whatever else. What do you think these, some of these statistics are looking at that, that think Stockton is so much better than what we talked about today? I think those two box stats in particular, I've mentioned this before, are a little overtuned to the heliocentric you know they're trained on like the seasons of the last few years and they look at that and they go oh all the top offensive play Luka Doncic and James Harden and LeBron James and Russell Westbrook what you want to do is have the ball a ton and score like 30 points a game and give out 10 assists and so I think those stats both of those stats in particular love the idea of points and assists spiking in volume with the same player uh the box, my box model that that we use that I prefer for stuff like that, has Stockton as a good offensive player. Let's look at the playoffs, 
any three-year stretch you look at, he peaks at about plus four, plus four and a half. I mean, that's 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 a really nice offensive player. Might be like an all-NBA level offensive player. If you look at Nash and Nash's best stretches, he gets plus five, plus six. 2005 to 2007, his offensive box plus minus is plus 5.8. Uh, 2007 to 2010, it's plus 5.5. So you are up another level sort of with the with the cream of the crop, if you will, 99th, 100th percentile kind of thing. You know, there's only a hand. I don't know the ranking off the top of my head, but I think Michael Jordan and LeBron and a few guys have better offensive numbers. But I, 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 think, it's, I think it's just a model that, especially if you look at the regular season, says this guy must be incredible. He's handing out 14 assists a game and scoring 17 points per game. This, this uh, blips my radar is something that I assume is fantastic. Okay. So yeah, it's ultimately just picking up on the this dude's super efficient. This dude's dropping a lot of assists. Part of it, I think so. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, who did we who did we skip over? We we skipped over. These are players that essentially had no change this time through history. In the last five years, we've run a couple projects, a ton of historical projects. We've had access to more and more games that we've been able to watch, and that's you know the the motivation for discussing some of these newer players and older players on the list, like Nash and Stockton, who have updated thoughts. Uh, number twenty eight is Rick Barry. He was 29th last time. Really interesting thing for me about Rick Barry is when I was looking at the other publications, none of them seem to have him top 30, hmm. uh, which actually kind of surprised me. I just figured he's such a big name in NBA history, but maybe playing in the ABA took out some of his numbers when people look him up on basketball reference. I don't know, but he's 28th here and typically in the 30s in other major publications that have been put out recently. Scotty Pippen is number 27. He was 25th last time. Again, no material changes. Some guys just moving around, uh, sliding in front of them and things like that. Pippen typically anywhere from like 22 to 32, I think is really common for him on major lists. Dwayne Wade at number 26, no change again. He was 24th last time. I think he's just getting passed by newer players. And Moses Malone at 25, he was 26th last time. Stockton at 24, Nash at 23. Any other thoughts you have on these guys uh, before we call uh, call it on this one and move on to, oh boy, I'm ex- I am excited about the next episode. The, the Terry Porter, Mark Price episode? The Terry, the Terry Porter, Mark Price. I mean, we said no new, we got all the new players covered, uh, but, but wait till people find out uh, about the Terry Porter, Mark Price episode. Uh, if you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have access to all of the historical stats that we typically reference throughout these shows. We also have a monthly Q&A in our Discord server. Our Discord server also, I've tasked them with putting out uh, a list of their favorite movies. That's one of the most important things that they have to accomplish this month. Um, we do do a live Q&A monthly over there. Let's let's move along. Let's get to that next episode. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end of this one. And I hope wherever you are listening from, you're having a great day.